Okay, so we're in Matthew chapter 26. The last time I taught, we finished through verse 30. And we talked about the Passover quite a bit last time. Does anyone remember anything that you know, stands out to them from last time? Yeah, they, it's the, uh, you know, this three pouch, this three uh, section pouch, which has the three sections of bread, and the middle section is taken out. The other two are never touched, and it's taken out, and it's put in a separate pouch, and they go hide it while they're eating dinner. Okay, when the dinner's over, it's when they take that, they have a child go find it, and the child brings it back to them, and then they, that's the one that Jesus was breaking, saying, this is my body, broken for you. So the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, the Son was taken out. He was hidden for a period of time. His body is broken and he comes back out. So it's symbolizing him dead, buried, and risen, rise from the grave. And also symbolic of his body being broken for them. And that's why it would have had a lot of significance to know that's the bread he's using. Uh, and maybe they didn't understand at that point in time. The disciples. Well, they, oftentimes they don't understand things till later on. But... Um, it's definitely significant for us to understand how that feast was going on. So, yeah, that, that's good. Anything else? The four cups. Not just one. Right. And the significance of those sanctification, the plagues, and redemption, the cup of redemption. Which is the cup Which that... Is the cup. Right. Yeah, the cup of redemption. Right. That's the cup that he said, drink... This is the cup of the new covenant for the remission of sins. Yeah. Yes. And what's the fourth cup? And there's the one left out for Elijah. Right. Which signifies what's to come. Right. 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 The whole Passover Seder has such significance. Right. Amen. It sure does. Because we're still looking for Elijah. Yeah. John the Baptist came in the spirit and power of Elijah, yeah. but he wasn't Elijah himself. It wouldn't surprise me if, if Elijah actually did reveal himself during a Passover festival to begin preaching as one of the two witnesses. wouldn't surprise me at all. Yes? No, this is something I got from Jewish tradition. Yeah, the, the first Passover, they were doing it on the run, so to speak. So a lot of these things weren't taking place during that. But this is all... Jewish tradition, and if you were to ask a rabbi, why three pouches? You know, why the three sections? Well, I don't know. That's what they would say. They'd say maybe it's symbol- symbolic of uh, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, or maybe it's symbolic of the uh, the priests, the Levites, and the people. But of course, I, I think it's symbolic of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, and that they take him. This is not stuff that's, that's talked about in the Old Testament. No, <clears throat> the Passover festival was the first celebrate. Was done. You're girded. You are standing up. You're ready to walk out the door because at any time God could call you to leave. Because they they got up and left. They left. To, you know they didn't they didn't wait. I don't think they waited till to the light came up. Uh, they left. They left right away as soon as God told them to. 
Anything else you remember? Yes, brother. I thought it was uh, really interesting about the unleavened bread. The unleavened bread is pierced. Mm-hmm. They get all the possible leaven out of it. It's right. pierced, and that we also have to be pierced. And Jesus himself was pierced. Mm-hmm. Right. So he's that bread of life, so I think that's really significant to see that. Right. Oftentimes, if you, uh, you see the matzah crackers, you'll see little holes in them. And that's, that's, that's one of the reasons why. Now they wanted. It was real serious. They wanted to make sure all the leaven was out of their house. And if you if you had leaven in your house during this 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 feast, you were separated from the people of Israel. You were kicked out. That's how serious it was. And so that that should be very uh, make us very aware that as any yeast in our lives, we're kicked out of the elect of God to a sin. So we we see that definitely in there. Right. Yeah, Isaiah 53 is one of the first passages I always get to share with Jews. I ask them, who's this talking about? Yeah. And they usually don't have a good answer. I've heard one guy say, it's the Messiah we're waiting for. I've heard one say that, but uh, most of them don't have a good answer for it. They're kind of baffled. I'd say half of them are pretty much baffled. Half of them are just like, you know, genealogical Jews and don't really care. Uh, but half of them are baffled and don't know what to say about it. So Israel was bruised for our iniquities. Yeah, yeah. All right, anything else? Or from last time? Took the, the bitter bread with the bitter herbs on it. Yeah. So it seems like he had there has a period of time there where Judas had a chance to repent. You know? yeah. And I don't think it's that that he rebuked him out of him or anyone rebuked him out of him. Satan just was just using him for his purposes and didn't need to use him during that time. But uh, he still, I mean, when Satan's not in you, it's like someone being delivered from demons and having a period of time, and then what does demon do? He comes back with more. It makes it worse. Yeah. If, were, if it's clean and left and left empty, if the Holy Spirit comes and fills you, then it's not empty anymore. Yeah. He could have repented, but uh, yeah, obviously he chose not to. So, uh, about the Last Supper, uh, if the bread uh, was actually his body, and the blood mm-hmm. was actually, if the wine was actually his blood, and uh, how could that be explained? Because Jesus was right there in the body, in the blood, right. standing right there when he gave it. Right. So it couldn't have possibly been his body and blood. Right. Right. And, and usually, what I what I've seen in scripture is that the the first time something's instituted, it's the the least symbolic time. The times that come after that are more symbolic, not less symbolic. And so if, if the first time it happens, it's not a literal eating of his flesh and his blood. It doesn't become that in your mouth, when you, as the Roman Catholic would say. Then obviously the times that it happens after that, it wouldn't be that either. So, 
And we saw the sovereignty of God and, and the planning of where we're going to, where they were going to eat the Passover, that it wasn't done until right before it happened, that he didn't send Judas to be a part of it. He sent only certain ones to be, I think it was Peter and, and John, he sent them to be a part of it. So Judas, he was looking for a chance, he sought for opportunity from that time forward to betray him. If he would have went to pick the place, he went straight to the people, told them, and he would have been betrayed, not in the Garden of Gethsemane, which we're going to see today, but he'd been betrayed at, during the Passover, and it would have never been served. And then communion, which happened at the very end, would have never been instituted. You see the sovereignty of God. Didn't take Judas' free will away, just took information away from him that he wouldn't allow, that he wouldn't allow him to have. He gave information to trusted people, Peter and John. Oh yeah, open theists have a problem with a lot of the stuff that we're going to talk about in upcoming days. Uh, well, yes, open theists have a lot of problems with uh, with last week's passage. You know, even Jesus saying he will betray me. This is before it even happens. Okay, well this week we're going to start in verse 31 and go through verse 46. Let's go ahead and read that. And Jesus said to them, All of you will be made to stumble because of me this night, for it is written, I will strike the shepherd, and the sheep of the flock will be scattered. But after I have been raised, I will go before you to Galilee. Peter answered and said to him, Even if you are all, even if all are made to stumble because of you, I will never be made to stumble. And Jesus said to him, Surely I say to you, this night, before the rooster crows, you will deny me three times. Peter said to him, Even if I have to die with you, I will not deny you. And so said all the disciples. And Jesus came with them to a place called Gethsemane and said to the disciples, Sit here while I go and pray over there. And he took with him Peter and the two sons of Zebedee and began to be, be sorrowful and deeply distressed. Then he said to them, My soul is exceedingly sorrowful, even to death. Stay here and watch with me. He went a little further and fell on his face and prayed, saying, O my father, if it is possible, let this cup pass from me, nevertheless, not as I will, but as you will. Then he came to the disciples and found them sleeping and said to Peter, What? Could you not watch with me one hour? Watch and pray, lest you enter into temptation. The spirit indeed is willing, but the flesh is weak. Again a second time, he went away and prayed, saying, O my father, if this cup cannot pass away from me unless I drink it, your will be done. And he came and found them asleep again, for their eyes were heavy. So he left them, went away again, and prayed the third time, saying the same words. Then he came to his disciples and said to them, Are you still sleeping and resting? Behold, the hour is at hand, and the Son of Man is being betrayed into the hands of sinners. Rise, let us be going. See, my betrayer is at hand. Okay, so we see in verse 31, all of you will be made to stumble. Now, uh, I've never heard a Calvinist use this argument, but I want to address it just in case you may come upon someone who would use this argument for their theological system, is that made to stumble, as if something or someone is forcing the disciples to stumble. Okay? Now, this made to stumble, I want you to liken it to this, and this is what I think Jesus is saying here, is that you're walking along a road, and you're going towards a crack in a road or a rock in a road, and you stumble over the rock. Now, what made you stumble? The rock or the crack? But could you have walked around that rock? Could you have walked around that crack? Yes. So, the
the pro- the point here is not saying that someone or something is forcing them to stumble or forcing them to sin, but there's going to be something that's going to happen here in a little bit that's going to be the cause of their stumbling. But they didn't have to stumble if they didn't want to. And we see here, uh, go down to verse 33, and we'll see Peter's understanding of what Jesus said here. He says at the end of verse 33, I will never be made to stumble. So he's not, he, see, Peter didn't understand in the sense that something or someone outside of me is going to make me stumble and I can't resist it. I don't have free will in the situation. He didn't understand it like that. Okay? And then we see at the uh, end of uh, verse 35, he says, And so said all the disciples. So all the disciples understood it the very same way. That they weren't going to be made to stumble in the sense that something or someone outside of them is forcing them, that they lack free will. They're simply saying, whatever happens, Jesus, I'm not going to stumble. That's what he's saying. That's what they're saying. But Jesus tells them that uh, he knows they will stumble. And this is where the prophecy comes in in verse, uh, uh, at the end of verse 31. And, and it says, I will strike the shepherd and the sheep of the flock will be scattered. And I believe that's from Zechariah 13. And um, so we see a prophecy here. So we see, once again, prophecy, God having foreknowledge. And this is a parallel prophecy because there was, I believe, in Zechariah 13, there was a... Um, a reason for it saying back in that time. So it's not just a simply uh, looking into the future and just only referring to the disciples. It referred to someone, to something in the Old Testament, I believe. And now it's referring to something in someone in the New Testament as well. It's called a parallel prophecy. So we have a prophecy said in the Old Testament and fulfilled in the Old Testament. And then Jesus brings it to the light and says the same situation, parallel situation, not exactly the same, but parallel and it's being fulfilled in the New Testament as well. But if we didn't know about this New Testament occurrence, it wouldn't have made a difference because there was still a fulfillment in the Old Testament. That's called a parallel prophecy. Of course, there's prophecies in the Old Testament that don't have an Old Testament fulfillment. Okay, Isaiah 53 is one of them. I talked about that a second ago. That only has a future fulfillment in Jesus Christ. Okay? But we see here uh, a prophecy... And Jesus is saying, will be fulfilled. He has certainty about it. Yet, these men of his, all 11 of them at this point, still have free will in the situation. So we see God for certain knowing what they're going to do, but their free will is not taken away. And they didn't think their free will was taken away. They still thought that they could resist it and not stumble at this thing Jesus was referring to. Okay? All right, so we see... um, in verse 32, but after I have been raised, I will go before you to Galilee. Now, this is something just went over their head. Okay? It's like it went in one ear and out the other. And I'm going to prove it to you right now. Go to Mark 16, 11 through 14. So Jesus just said to them, I will die. I will raise from the grave and go before you to Galilee. Now, if you understood what Jesus was saying there, and you believed it, what would you do? You'd probably go to Galilee and wait there for him, right? Would you be surprised if he rose from the grave? Would you disbelieve someone who came to you and said, he's risen? Yeah, you wouldn't You wouldn't do that. So in, in Mark chapter 16, and in verse 11, Mary Magdalene came back to them, 
And it says in verse 11, when they had heard that he was alive and had been seen by her, they did not believe. They did not believe. Verse 12, after that he appeared in another form to two of them as they walked and went into the country. I believe that's talking about the uh, road to Emmaus encounter found in John. And when they went and told it to the rest, but they did not believe them either. Did not believe them. And wait, wait till you see Jesus' response in verse 14. Later he appeared to the eleven as they sat at the table, and he rebuked their unbelief and hardness of heart because they did not believe those who had seen him after he had risen. So it went over their head. It went in one ear and out the other. Go to Luke chapter 24. Chapter 24. Luke 24, verse 11. These women came back and told the apostles, and it says, the words seemed to them like idle tales, and they did not believe them. They're simply saying what Jesus already told them. It's basically like saying, well, Jesus, what you said was an idle tale. Very dangerous. That's what you hear sometimes in the open air. You, know, you tell them what the Bible says, it seems like an idle tale. It's unbelievable. Verse 12, But Peter arose and ran to the tomb. And stooping down, he saw the linen cloths lying by themselves, and he departed, marveling to himself at what had happened. Why is he marveling? Why is he surprised? Why are they disbelieving? Because they went in one ear and out the other. And I want to admonish you, friends. When you hear the word of God preached, when you read the word of God in your daily readings, don't let it go in one ear and out the other. Don't go through your day. I'm going to read the Bible today. You know, it's my duty to read the Bible. I'm going to read the Bible every single day. I'm going to read two chapters a day. And what you read goes in one ear and out the other. You forget it as soon as you walk away. Don't do that. Don't do that, friends. Otherwise, you're in danger of what they were in danger of, being rebuked by Jesus. Let it sink in, friends. Meditate upon his law day and night, he said to Joshua in Joshua 1.8. That everything it says, you may do it. Yes. Let it sink into your heart that you may not sin against them. Psalm 119, verse 11. And so we need to be careful, friends, that as we hear the word of God preached in fellowship, as we hear the word of God spoken to us as we're in our prayer closet, and I hope you're still doing that, as we, as we read the scriptures daily, that we're in danger of, we're so enthralled with, I have to, you know, some people have this idea they have to read the Bible through every year. That's a good plan. I think you should read the Bible through a lot. Some people want to read it through three or four times one year. Praise the Lord. But there's a danger in having this goal to accomplish in reading the Bible, so much of the Bible each day, but what you're reading doesn't sink in. It doesn't change you. That's dangerous. Because now you have knowledge that you're not obeying. It's like Leonard Ravenhill said. He said, some people just want more light. But they're not in need of more light. They're in need of more obedience. More light, not obeyed, just condemns you. It makes it worse on you. And so we need to be careful that the words of Jesus don't become like idle words to us. That we are not excited about it anymore. That we don't care what his word says. That we're so enthralled with our daily duties and things we have to do each day that his word just kind of gets... It's not exciting to you anymore. You're not passionate about it. You know, we can memorize a million scriptures, but if it doesn't mean much to us, or we don't obey it, 
it's just head knowledge or it's just to impress somebody, there's great danger, friends. Great danger in that. So this went in one ear and out the other. It's like they didn't even hear it. They didn't even get it. Peter answered and said to him in verse 33, Even if all are made to stumble because of you, I will never be made to stumble. Jesus said to him, Surely I say to you that this night before the rooster crows, and there's more information in Mark. I'm not going to go there and, and talk about it too much, but Mark 14 and verse 30. In Mark 14, 69 through 72, it's actually the rooster crowing two times before you'll deny me three times. Okay, So that's the added information Mark gives to us. Peter said to him, even if I have to die with you, I will not deny you. And so said all the disciples. Now, we just talked about a second ago, Brother Tracy brought it up, about open theism. And I think most of us know what that is now, but just to give a recap, open theism says that God does not know the future free will decisions of man because the future is not in existence yet. Okay, So God couldn't know it because the future is not in existence yet. So they would say that God is not looking down on a timeline, past, present, future, and looking all at one time. And I don't necessarily agree with that either, but open theism says that God is, is, uh, is dynamic, he's, he's within time, and he doesn't know the future free will decisions of man because they haven't happened. That's what open theism says. Okay? At this fellowship, we don't agree with open theism. We believe that God has exhausted foreknowledge of all future free will decisions. Now, how he knows those things, we don't know. The Bible doesn't give that description. It doesn't say he's looking down a timeline, seeing past, present, future all at once. I don't think it's like that, to be honest. But God does know, and I think this right here uh, is one of the Difficult texts that open theists have to deal with when it comes to knowing future free will decisions. Okay? Because Jesus said to Peter that you will deny me three times. Now, animals are governed by instinct. They have no free will like we do. They're not moral creatures. So God could have made the, the rooster crow the second time right after Peter denied him the third time. That's possible. But how God could know without knowing the future free will decisions of Peter, that he could deny him three times. Not once, not twice, three times. Not four times, not five times, not zero times. Exactly three times. God had to have somehow known the future free will decisions of Peter. Okay? And um, so, so they have to deal with this issue here. And let's go to uh, Luke 21, 22 for a second here. we got some added information here. Right before, right before uh, Jesus says this to Peter, in Luke, he gives him some, some preface here as to what is actually going on in the spiritual realm when it comes to Peter denying Jesus three times. Luke 22 and verse 31 and 32. And the Lord said, Simon, Simon, indeed, Satan has asked for you that he may sift you as wheat. But I have prayed for you, that your faith should not fail, and when you have returned to me, strengthen your brethren. Now the open theist has even more problems, because not only does Jesus know that Peter's going to depart by denying him three times, but he knows his faith will completely fail and he'll come back to him. Now unless an open theist is willing to say that God is doing all these things to Peter, 
He's making him deny. He's making him depart. He's making him come back. That's the only way you could solve this problem, from from my perspective. And so, but in, in the whole situation, we know that Peter still doesn't lack free will. Okay, he still has decisions to make. Each time he's tempted, we'll get into that probably next week or the week after that. Each time he's tempted to deny Jesus, he did not have to deny Jesus. No one made him do it. And uh, he simply, in my perspective, and we'll get to that in a few weeks or maybe next week, he has this fear of his own life. It's what he's dealing with. He fears man. It's what he's dealing with. And that I've, we've talked about this before in this fellowship. It's one of the, the greatest tools the devil has is to threaten you with your life. But one of the greatest tools we have to fight that is the Word of God, because death has lost its sting for us. We don't fear death, because death has lost its sting. We know to whom we belong. We know we'll be in the end, if we persevere to the end. And, and, and this is exactly what the devil wants you to do. He wants you to fear losing your life, because if you fear losing your life, you deny Christ, and then that person decides to take your life anyway, in the midst of your denial, then what's going to happen to you? then you're going to go to hell. Which is much worse than physical death. It's one of the greatest tools the devil uses. But we need to have the right perspective on our own life. On our own bodies. We need to have the right perspective on these things. And it's God's perspective, God's Word's perspective. This is just a shell that I'm living in right now. That's going to pass away. I'm going to get a new body. I don't know treasuring this body. My treasures aren't on earth. I'm not treasuring this body. I treasure Christ. And he will give me a new body. But what we see here in verse 33 through 35 is the plague of invincibility. And I, I, I don't want you to have this plague, friends, because there's Christians who think they're invincible. What you need to realize no matter how much you believe in holiness and perfection and what the Bible says about such things, you need to realize that you, yes, even you could fall. And you would always had that before your eyes because Peter didn't have it before his eyes, did he? He had the plague of the invincible Christian. Oh, I'm, I'm going to die with you. And that's good to be able to say that to God. But you need to have sober thinking regarding yourself. Not considering yourself more highly than you ought to. As we talked about today, being humble. Realizing that temptation can come when you least expect it. It can be right around the corner. And if you have the right perspective on temptation and upon yourself, and that you're not invincible, that there's always a chance you could fall, then these things, what's going to happen to Peter here, won't happen to you. In fact, let's, let's go to Peter's own writings here for a second. I think he learned his lesson. We'll see what he says in 1 Peter chapter 5. We see at the, uh, at the end of verse 5, it says, God resists the proud... You could also say God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Verse 6, Therefore humble yourselves under the mighty hand of God, that he may exalt you in due time, casting all your care upon him, 
for He cares for you. Be sober. Be vigilant. Because your adversary, the devil, walks about like a roaring lion seeking whom he may devour. Resist him steadfast in the faith, knowing that the same sufferings are experienced by your brotherhood in the world. Peter's problem in this passage we just read was not, it was that he was prideful. He considered himself more highly than he ought to. And if you're wondering where that verse is, it's Romans 12.3. Okay, the one I just, I just quoted. He didn't humble himself. He thought of himself more than he should have. He had the plague of invincibility as a Christian. Instead of admitting that he had a fear of man. Instead of admitting to God, I need your help. Because it says right here, cast all your cares upon him, for he cares for you. If you're weak in some area of life, you need to confess to the Lord and ask him to help you. Not think, oh, I, I can do it all by myself. I'm invincible. No, you need to think, Lord, help me. I need your help. Because God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Do you, don't you want the grace of God in your life? Yes, he, he gives it to the humble, not to the prideful. It says, uh, be sober. Now, as I was meditating upon that word sober, I thought about when I used to get drunk. And when I used to get drunk, I had the same plague that Peter had. I thought I was invincible. I said, well, give me those car keys. I'll drive myself home. I can drive drunk. No problems. The cops won't pull me over. I have good judgment when I'm drunk. Now, coming from a drunkard, is that trustworthy? Yeah. So, a drunkard is someone who makes bad decisions. His judgment is fuzzy. He doesn't think about himself rightly the way he ought to because he does not see himself in truth. The view he has of himself is fuzzy. Fuzzy. And so we need to be the opposite of that. We need to be sober when it comes to temptation. Sober when it comes to the devil and his uh, attacking of us. Self-controlled and well-balanced. A drunkard stumbles all over the place. Can't even walk straight. One of the tests that a cop gives a drunkard, can you walk a straight line? And then he'll make you uh, lift your leg up and touch your nose like this. He'll make you say your ABCs backwards. People who are sober have a hard time with that, don't they? And ultimately, if you're, if you're, you practiced your drunkenness enough and able to pass all those tests in the midst of your drunkenness, he gives you a breathalyzer test, which tells the truth no matter what. And I submit to you that this was Peter's breathalyzer test. He had the front. I'm invincible. I'll, I'll go with you to death, he said. Right? All the disciples said it with them. Was that the truth? Were they willing to go with him to death? When death presented itself, this group of people came out with clubs in their hands and swords in their hands. Where did, I mean, Peter, he cut the guy's ear off, right? But as soon as the ear was put back on, what did he do? He went running like the rest of them. That was his breath of life test about who he really was inside. Now, I'll tell you, friends, when you least expect it, temptation is going to come or testing will come. God will allow temptation to come into your life. 
And it's going to attempt to show you who you truly are. What you truly are. But if we're sober about ourselves, and we cast our cares upon him, we think about ourselves rightly, what we really are, and cast our cares upon him and say, Lord, help me. I need your help. Before a great fall comes in my life, I need your help. Then those things won't happen. What happened to Peter won't happen to you. So we need to be sober, be vigilant. Vigilant means to be awake, be alert, be watchful. One who engages uh, in watching out for things. So you're awake, you're alertful, you're watchful. As we see in our passage, we get back to it here in a little bit, um, they weren't alert. They weren't watchful. And even Jesus warned Peter, he said, Satan desires for you. And he'll sift you as wheat. And right after that, he's sleeping. If Jesus told me that, I hope to God I'd be up all night praying. If Satan, Satan himself, not one of his little demons, but Satan himself wanted to sift me as wheat, I would hope to God that I would be praying and praying and praying, even it cost me my sleep and food and everything else. But if you think you're invincible, what reason do you have to be to be vigilant? What reason do you have to be alert, to be awake and be watchful? If nothing can touch you, nothing can make you fall, what reason do you have to be those things? But we need to understand. I think a, a, a video Brother Tracy has uploaded to YouTube is there's a guy on there who makes this very clear. We are not in a time of peace. We are not in a time of peace. We are at war. And the enemy of our souls, he doesn't rest. He doesn't rest at all. And so we have no time to rest. I'm not talking about having physical sleep. I'm talking about spiritually now. We have no time to rest and to lay back and say, I'm going to take a break for a while. No, when it comes to spiritual, we're always pressing forward. We're never on the retreat. We're always on the advance. So we need to be sober. We need to be vigilant for our adversary, our accuser, our enemy, the devil. And the word the devil here is diablos, and uh, it's not only used the devil himself, it means one who engages in slander. So uh, don't be like the devil. Don't engage in slander of your brother or sister in Christ or anybody. Your adversary, your accuser, your enemy. He walks about like a roaring lion, seeking whom he may devour. Now, I've watched lots of nature shows on lions. Uh, part of our homeschool education. Um, you know, children are still pretty young, so that's part of their scientific education here. They watch a lot of shows on lions and tigers, and maybe some bears too. Um, and uh, in lions, they're very sneaky. Okay, uh, when there's dry grass and it's all burnt up, they have a hard time catching their their prey because their prey can see them coming. They like to use camouflage, right? And they hunt in groups, and they they try to take this this prey down, and then they all feast on its flesh, and then they can hang out for a week and they have to eat again as long as it's big enough. And of course, all that doesn't apply to what it's saying here, but I I think. The way the lion hunts does apply here. You see, the lion will try to take camouflage. 
He'll try to get you when you least expect it. When you least expect it. But guess what? If you're always watching, if you're over, always sober, if you're always vigilant, that can't happen, can it? That can't happen, can it? If you don't think about yourself more highly than you ought to, that can't help happen, can it? If you're watching and praying, you know, the Bible talks about, we, we saw this in Matthew 24, Matthew 25, about watching and praying for Jesus to return. But the scripture also says, watch for the one who hates you, your enemy, your adversary, right now, always watching, always in a spirit of prayer about these things. And notice it says he's a roaring lion, seeking who he may devour. Uh, and I've, I've, I've given you this analogy before, and I think it's biblical, and so I want to submit to you again, that the devil, the lion, has no teeth. He has a loud roar, but he has no teeth. It's almost as if you have the dentures you can put in his mouth and say, go ahead and eat me up. That's what it takes. It takes your submission to him. Lions in real life, it doesn't take your submission to them. They take whatever they want. Okay. When it comes to Satan... He has no authority to do anything to you, and he has no way of making you sin or getting you to sin, no matter how much temptation or influence he brings. He can't make you sin. He can simply influence and tempt. And, and we saw in Peter's example that Satan axed, just like in the example of Job. Okay? But if you submit to him, he will devour you. And he'll go as far as you let him go until there's nothing left. With nothing left. So we need to oppose him. We need to resist him. We need to be steadfast. We need to be, the word steadfast there means firm, solid, strong, will not be moved. Steadfast. Don't let him move you to the left or the right. You say steadfast upon God's word, steadfast in the faith, and one of your consolations when you're fighting temptation that there's brothers around the world, sisters around the world, who are going through the same sufferings. Don't get this pity party going on where you're the only one going through this. There's people around the world who have been, who are, and who will go through the same temptation, the same suffering that you're enduring right now or you may endure at some point in time. That's one of the other devices the devil uses. And 1 Corinthians 10.13 talks about this. No temptation is overtaking you except such as is common to man. Your temptation you're enduring right now is common to man. It's not uncommon. You're not the only person going through this. So we need to be sober. We need to be vigilant. We do not have this plague of the invincible Christian. You know, people oftentimes, when you talk about biblical perfection, use that the P word, which is like a dirty word to them. It's like a cuss word to some Christians. Professional Christians, anyway. They think you mean by that, um, well, Tracy's saying... He doesn't have the ability to sin anymore since he became a Christian. But Tracy would never say that. That would be the plague of invincibility. To think, well, I can't fall here. And I'm going to tell you this. There may be things in your life that you've overcome for years. And when you least suspect it, it'll come right around and smack you in the back of the head. I'm telling you, I've experienced it myself. I've been a Christian 15 years now. There's things I've overcome for years, and it'll come right back around and try to tempt me again. After I thought, like I thought I was done with this, it'll come right back around again. So you need to be sober. You need to be vigilant. Be watching. 
don't have the same problem that Peter and the other disciples had, and then get a rude awakening, I am not what I thought I was. I am not what I said I was. Go deeper with God so you can be what you God wants you to be. And what they said with their words, that they were. Because as we sang today, Jesus deserves more than our words, right? More than our words. He deserves it all. Then Jesus came with them to a place called Gethsemane. Now the word Gethsemane means a place where the olive oil is pressed. Isn't that a fitting term for this? Because Jesus was pressed here like olive oil. He was squeezed. Squeezed to the point, we'll see here in a second, that that sweat was becoming like blood. And even though none of the accounts that I have read have mentioned Satan in this situation here, there's no doubt in my mind he's involved here. No doubt in my mind. This is his last chance, basically, to get Jesus to say, no, I'm not going to the cross. Before he goes through with it. He says, sit here, the disciples, sit here while I go and pray over there. He took with him Peter and the two sons of Zebedee and began to be sorrowful and deeply distressed. Then he said to them, Peter, James, and John, My soul is exceedingly sorrowful, even to death. Stay here and watch with me. He went a little further and fell on his face and prayed, saying, O my father, if it is possible, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not as I will, but as you will. Now, we've talked about this before, I think several times in this fellowship, about what this cup is. But I think it would be good to remind you again what is in this cup, what this cup is, what it is symbolic of. Because, not only for you, but people who are watching through video, because there's people going around that says this cup is the cup of God's wrath. That he's about to pour out on his own son. Which the scriptures never say anywhere. Now, there's things that people will read in the scriptures, like Isaiah 53... They'll say that's talking about that. And they'll even mock, I think, the proper interpretation of this by saying, oh, you think Jesus is whimpering and crying, crying or some physical suffering he's getting from human beings? They're mocking that. Uh, but let's, let's go to Matthew 20 uh, and verse 22. It's good for you to have this down very well because, you know, the, into- the atonement and what happened there is a very integral, very important part of our theology. Very important part of the scripture is talked about over all the way back to Genesis talked about Genesis two fifteen talks about this how uh, maybe it's Genesis three fifteen uh, where it where it says that uh, you know this Satan will bruise his heel but the seed of Eve who is Jesus will crush his head you know so even back then it talks about the atonement so Matthew twenty starting in verse um, twenty two the sons of Zebedee James and John were asking to be sit at his right on the left in the kingdom. Jesus says in verse 22, You do not know what you ask. Are you able to drink the cup that I am about to drink and be baptized with the baptism that I am baptized with? Now let's stop right there. This cup he's about to drink, the same cup he's talking about in Gethsemane, if it's the cup of God's wrath, does Jesus' question even make any sense? Why would he even ask them that? Because if he's going to take the cup of God's wrath for everyone who's going to be saved in the world, 
in which, you know, our damnation is hell forever. We know. So let's say a million people got saved. That's a million eternities in hell, if you can even figure out that, because eternity is eternity. How can you have a million eternities? You can only have one eternity. Um, and so he asked them this question, and here's their answer. Now, if they understood him the way these people, under, some people understand him, that this is the cup of God's wrath, their answer makes no sense. It shows they did not understand him that way. He says, we are able. Now, I would never say that. I am not able to take God's wrath. I, I don't want God's wrath for all eternity. I'm not, I'm not able to endure that. Just read Luke 16 if you think you are. Because I tell people to open the air, if you think you're able to take the fires for all eternity, let's, why don't you light your hand on fire for five minutes? See if you can endure that. Verse 23, so he said to them, you will indeed drink my cup and be baptized with the baptism that I am baptized with. But to sit on my right hand and on my left is not mine to give, but for those to whom it is prepared by my Father. So, you will indeed drink my cup. It's not God's wrath. But I'll tell you what, James and John went through a lot of suffering on earth. You can read their stories. James is one of the first martyrs. He's the first apostle to be martyred. And John, they tried to kill him many times. You read the historical accounts of him. Even when he was banished to Patmos because they couldn't kill him, they tried to poison him in Patmos according to tradition. But we know that it didn't kill him because in Mark 16 it says that poison won't kill you. Jesus' promise is fulfilled. So there's this baptism, this cup that Jesus is talking about. He said they will be baptized with it. That verse, that scripture I just gave you alone should be enough to refute that idea. Okay? But if you want to look into it further, I'll give you some other scriptures to look at, okay? Mark 14, verses 32 through 42. If you look very carefully there in that passage, you'll see that hour of trouble and cup is synonymous there, okay? Uh, John chapter 18 and verses 10 through 11. And then we also see in John 12, 27 through 28. And Luke 12, verse 50. Okay, so that, yeah, Luke 12, verse 50. And I think that talks about the baptism and how he's, he's concerned about the baptism that he's about to be baptized with. And that goes back to Matthew 20 again, using the same language. And so putting these passages together, you can see uh, what is in this cup, the cup of man's suffering towards Christ. And the question becomes, why is he so sorrowful about this? Why is he exceedingly sorrowful? Because we can think about this a little bit. Um, first of all, this is his own creation doing this to him. Something you and I will never experience. The closest we can come to experiencing that is having your son or daughter do such things to you. I'm sure none of us will ever experience. None of us will ever experience our son or daughter beating us bruising us to the point of almost death, putting a crown of thorns in our head, mocking us, punching us, spitting us, mocking us as if, oh, you're, look, you're the father, ha, 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 ha. You know, that'd be, that'd be what it's like. And then crucifying us. Most, I, I don't think anyone here is ever going to endure that. But that'd be the closest it would come. But even then, you didn't create your son or daughter. God knits them together in your mother's womb. You just provide a little bit of a... Supplies for it. That's it. Nothing else. 
So he's enduring this at the hand of his own creation, whom he taught the truth. And not only his own creation, but his own people, the Jewish people, who had been blessed so much through the years, all the miracles, all the plagues, all the deliverances, all the blessings, and they still reject, reject, reject. All the prophecy about him coming and who he'd be, and reject, reject, reject. None of us will ever experience that. Ever. So the more God gives them, the harder it is when there's rejection. And God endures this all day. Put yourself in God's place just for a second and, and try to sympathize with God. He hears his name blessed. I mean, I go to a, a, a football game and I preach. You know, people walking by, hear maybe five or six blasphemies in the, you know, 30 minutes. He hears it all day, every day. Imagine that. So we can see with these things in mind, and we, and we could add more things to this, I'm sure, why Christ is suffering in, within himself so much. And not only that, his own top three disciples, he just asked them to watch them just for a little while, to watch them and pray, not only for his sake, but for their sake. He wants some human sympathy, but for their sake, that they may not enter into temptation themselves. And um, he doesn't get it from them. Not even them. And of course we know that the father's part in this is he lifted his hand of protection off of his son and allowed wicked men to do whatever they wanted to him. Yes. Um, Psalm, let's see here. It's when Jesus cried out on the cross, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? I believe it's Psalm 22, yep. Verse 1. And people would, some people who suppose this God pouring out his wrath on his son issue, they, they'll say, well, that, that's God pouring out his wrath on his son. That's what it means there. That's God turning his back on his son. His son is separated from him. His son actually becomes a sinner on the cross because since the world are laid upon him, so he actually becomes a sinner, which wouldn't work with the Trinity, the doctrine of the Trinity. Christ can never relationally be separated from the Father doesn't work for the Trinity, so Christ could never become a sinner, literally speaking. Uh, but in Psalm 21, it says, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why are you so far from helping me and from the words of my groaning? So God was far from helping him, far from the words of his groaning. Okay? If you read on in Psalm 22, you can see in verse 14, it says, I am poured out like water, and all my bones are out of joint. Talking about his, his arms being stretched out on the cross, which would, would have required... Um, from what I understand about the, what happens on the cross, to require this, the separation of the shoulder joint. Uh, my heart is like wax. It is melted within me, which is when he pierced him in the side and the water and the blood came out. That's showing what happened there within his heart. Verse 16, they pierced my hands and my feet. Verse 18, or verse 17, I can count all my bones. means none of them are broken, which we saw that at the cross. They look at and stare at me. They divide my garments among them, and for my clothing they cast lots. We see that happening at the cross. So Psalm 22 is a messianic psalm, talking about what happened at the cross. And we see all throughout Christ's life, many times when they wanted to kill him, stone him, throw him off a cliff, wanted to lay their hands on him, and they were never able to do it. And now we have something different happening at the end. We don't see Christ fleeing. We don't see God the Father intervening and stopping them. We're seeing all these things happen. And Christ could call, call on 12 legions of angels if he wants to. 
But he doesn't. So he's passive as well. And that's his love for not only the people who are doing it to him, but for you. Without the shedding of blood, there's no forgiveness of sins. And so he asks them to watch them, and they don't watch with him. He falls on his face the first time he goes. If it's possible, just pass from me. But he's submitting his will to the Father. And he came to the disciples and found them sleeping and said to Peter, What? Could you not watch with me one hour? Watch and pray, lest you enter into temptation. The spirit indeed is willing, but the flesh is weak. Watch and pray, lest you enter into temptation. The very thing I was just talking about. Being sober, being vigilant, because you don't know what's around the corner. You can't lay down your, your, your shield of faith. You can't lay down your helmet of salvation, your breastplate of rest, your sword of the spirit, for an hour. You have to be watching, vigilant, and sober, because you don't know what's They didn't know what's coming. They did not know what was coming to them. They did not know it was coming. That's why he said, watch and pray. And if they would have watched and prayed, I submit to you, they probably wouldn't have, maybe some of them wouldn't have fled. They wouldn't have done what they did. Now I want to address this. The spirit indeed is willing, but the flesh is weak. I think verse 43 clears up what the flesh is weak is saying here. And he came and found them asleep against, for their eyes were heavy. The flesh here is talking about their body. Their body's weak. Their body's tired. And, um, but even if your body is weak and your body is tired and Christ himself says, pray, you overcome it. You ask God for strength to overcome it, which they didn't do. Their eyes were heavy and they went to sleep. The spirit indeed is willing, but the flesh is weak. People will use that as an excuse for their sin. But there's no excuse for sin, friends. Again, a second time, he went away and prayed, saying, Oh, my Father, this cup cannot pass away from me unless I drink it. Your will be done. Verse 44. So he left them, went away again, and prayed the third time, saying the same words. You can see the distress he's under. Temptation under. And this is why I believe Satan is involved in some way here. Surely, if Satan wants to be a part of Judas, if Satan wants to uh, sift Peter... As we, surely, Satan wants to tempt Jesus as well. Go to Luke 22, and verse 43. And we'll see a little bit more of, of how strong this temptation was here. And Luke doesn't record all three times. He just went away and came back, went away and came back. I think verse 42 is referring to the last time. And uh, I'll explain to you why here in a second here. It says, Then an angel appeared to him from heaven, strengthening him. That's pretty significant right there. There's a great temptation going on. And being in agony, he prayed more earnestly. See? When temptation comes. Don't be tempted, friends, to pray a little bit and say, and give up. What did you just do? He prayed more earnestly. That's what we ought to do, friends. If you think temptation is about to overcome us, even though we're crying out to God, cry out to Him more earnestly. Pray to Him more earnestly. Then His sweat became like great drops of blood falling down to the ground. Now, I don't know what that's called medically, but that's that's pretty astonishing. To go through that much, that kind of grief, that kind of agony in your in your body, that the sweat 
can become like blood. When he rose up from prayer and had come to his disciples, he found them sleeping from sorrow. He said to them, Why do you sleep? Rise and pray, lest you enter into temptation. And while he was still speaking, this is why I thought it was the third one, while he was still speaking, behold, a multitude, and he who was called Judas, one of the twelve, went before them and drew near to Jesus to kiss him. So we see that he had great agony, great grief in his heart. But he pressed on in prayer, more earnestly in prayer, which is what we should do when temptation comes. Uh, back in uh, Matthew, in verse 45. <clears throat> then he came to the disciples and said to them, Are you still sleeping and resting? Still. This is his third admonition to them. Behold, the hour is at hand, and the Son of Man is being betrayed into the hands of sinners. Rise, let us be going. See, my betrayer is at hand. So now Jesus meets his destiny head on. He doesn't run from it. He's not running from his from the sinners this time, not trying to hide from them. It's the right time. At just the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. But friends, it shouldn't take several admonitions from the Lord to get us to go deeper in prayer. To get us to agonize and be more earnest in prayer. To get us to overcome a certain temptation. He shouldn't have to tell us over and over again. It should take one time. Arise. Pray. Be watchful. If the Lord asked you to, tonight, pray through the whole night, would you be willing to do it? Or is your sleep more important to you? If Christ asked you tomorrow to fast and give up food for the day, is your food that important to you? Or is Christ's command to you more important to you? That's the question you have to ask yourself. When temptation comes, do we go more earnestly in prayer or do we say, oh, it's too much? i got to give in. Just one more time. God will forgive me afterwards. He'll forgive me afterwards. On your right, he may. If you make it through it. If you make it through it. But we need to go more earnest in prayer, friends. Be more diligent, more sober in prayer. So we don't have these problems we see the disciples having here. Follow the example of our Savior, Jesus Christ who as he goes into the oil press of Gethsemane, and he is squeezed to the point of blood coming through his sweat, he takes that pressure and responds to a problem, not giving in and allowing it to crush him, but going more earnestly in prayer with God so he can survive this pressure, this crushing, this, this temptation, this squeezing that he feels upon himself. The only way he's able to survive that and not give in and say, let your will be done, not my will be done, is because he's going earnestly more in prayer with God. That's the only way. So next time temptation comes in your life, hear the voice of Christ saying, Watch. Pray, be diligent, so when temptation does come, you're ready for it. You're ready for it. Okay. We'll stop there for today. Questions? Comments? Objections?
Off the top of my head, I can't say there is any. Um, I, I do see the significance of him going back several times. The significance of that is that it's great temptation and there's great suffering. Um, but in the and the significance in there being three instead of two or instead of four, or, um, I'm sure we could probably think of some significance it could mean, but from the scripture itself, I can't think of any. It says, this is why he prayed three times. I noticed that uh, during Jesus' preaching, he preached uh, about hell three times in a row, too, about the, the worm does that Mark not nine. die and yeah. fire is not quenched. He preached those same words three times in a row. And I see these things in scripture as... I can't find any significance to it either, but yeah. I just kind of wonder yeah. why he did it three times, if there's any significance to three or not. Yeah. Well, he definitely, I mean, he got there, and he prayed, and then he went and checked on the disciples and prayed, and went and checked on them and prayed, and then his time was up. And there's chances if, if they hadn't come at that point in time, they would have prayed four times, or five times. It was just the, uh, it was just the amount of time he had. Definitely weak, and he was strengthened by the angel. So he prayed more earnestly. I don't know if this may be probably more fitting that Paul followed that, right. followed his master's example right. there. Right. And, uh, and the, but after praying three times, then the word comes yeah. to him. My yeah. grace is sufficient for you. Amen. It didn't come out the second time. Right. You know, but the third time. Yeah. Definitely need to persevere in prayer, that's for sure. Mm-hmm. We don't get an answer from the Lord. Amen. You know, sometimes he's saying, keep praying. Or wait. There's not, a, there's not a, a direct answer, yes or no, right away. He's just saying wait. But if you're saying yes or no, we need to act right away. If you're saying wait, we just need to keep on praying. You know? Daniel, the, the prophet? Stored him three times. Yes, that's what it says. Yes, you're very, very right about that. Yes, we'll, we'll probably get to that either next week or the week after that. Yeah, and it tells you why he went and we wept the way he did. I mean.
I think part of the problem with the disciples is their preconceived notions of who the Messiah should be, what he should come to do, and you know they thought he should, you know, the whole. I think one of the reasons why he was saying, James John was saying, "I said you left and you're right." Or they think it's going to be a physical kingdom right now and destroy the Roman oppression and release the Jews and. Yes, as a whole. And and, and it's possible they were just, you know confusing Old Testament passages which talk about Christ returning in the Millennial Kingdom but they had no, had the right time frame for that after all Jesus had said you think they would have switched their their thinking around by then I, 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 I can't be too harsh because I don't know what I would have done in their shoes if I would have been the same way or not yes we do which is always good even when you're looking at yourself, it's always better. I, I, uh, we recently watched uh, Jesus of Nazareth. Huh? Right? Yeah, it's an older version. It's an older, yeah, yeah uh, big production type right. of thing, but it has a lot of lot of good good things in it. Uh, and the, the one that they kind of open up a little bit doesn't show all that scripture, but it's Nicodemus and Joseph right. coming out. Yeah, Nicodemus and Joseph and Arimathea were kind of like secret Christians. Yeah. I wrote an article years ago uh, called Coming Out of the Closet. And it was uh, comparing Nicodemus and Joseph and Arimathea with the current homosexual pride parade movement. How the homosexuals will come out of their closet and they'll be prideful and have parades about their abomination. But when are Christians going to come out of the closet and stop being secret Christians and proclaim the Messiah? Because Nicodemus came to him at night. Joseph Amarthea says he was a disciple secretly for fear of the Jews. But once he died, there's really no threat anymore now. They came and got his body, and they came out. They were being bold now, I think, more bold. They came out in the open. They got his body, did it together. They prepared him for burial. And they even even bought a rich man's tomb that had never been used before to bury him. And this is all done, done out in the open now, not secretly. And so, mm-hmm. but they, uh, you know, Christians need to stop being secret Christians and be out in the open Christians. Proclaim their love for the Messiah, that they're a disciple of the Messiah out in the open. Not in private, not in secret. <laughs> All right, anybody else? Uh, 
Right. It's being gathered by the whole council of God and how God protected him so many times and then he didn't protect him. Psalm 22, 1. And it helps make sense of Isaiah 53 where it says that it pleased the Lord to bruise him. And in what sense it means that he bruised him. Uh, we could even talk about how uh, people, like David, for example, with Uriah. It said of him that he killed Uriah. Well, he didn't kill Uriah. Um, so we have him sending Uriah out to battle, and then he tells Joab, bring the soldiers back. So did Joab kill him? No. Did the soldiers who drew back kill him? No. The, the enemy actually killed him, right? But it took all those things happening. David bringing back, giving Joab the command, Joab obeying that command, the soldiers obeying that command, and then them killing him. And so, but David is still held accountable for murder there. And so that's where God has his part. Isaiah 53 talks about this, how it pleased the Lord to bruise him. Let me just read it real quick. Those parts I'm talking about here. These are the same scriptures that people will use to say that Christ, our God, poured out his wrath on him. Isaiah 53 and verse 4. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, talking about Jesus. Yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God and afflicted. So it says we esteemed him that way. Smitten by God and afflicted. And in some sense, he was smitten by God because God took his hand of protection off him. Verse 10, yet it pleased the Lord to bruise him. It could also be called crush him there. He's put him to grief. When you make his soul an offering for sin, he shall see his seed, he shall prolong his days, and the pleasure of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. And so you see these bruising, smiting, uh, first of all, verse 4 says that we esteemed him, smitten by God. And so when people were to look upon him, how beaten and bruised he was, uh, we would esteem him that way. And it pleased the Lord to bruise him in verse 10. Um, and my explanation for that is the same explanation that I would give for David and Uriah, is that God withheld his protection from him. Yes? And a couple other things I think we about and about before, too. Uh, well, one, the Septuagint version has none of that type of stuff. That's right. That's right. Yeah, those are those are uh, more complicated arguments. Yeah, but but I, I, yeah, I did admit I have it written there here in my Bible um, because people often don't accept the Septuagint as it. So if you're going to get in a, in a more deeper discussion with someone, that's fine. But I, I wouldn't necessarily use those arguments in the open air because of other problems it could cause in people. Uh, but yes. Those are definitely legitimate arguments. In fact, for verse 6, it says, And the Lord has laid in him the iniquity of us all. The end of verse 6. That's usually used to point out that Jesus became a sinner on the cross, and that's why God turned his head. But the Septuagint says, The Lord gave him up for our sins, which is really a better understanding of that. And it goes right along with uh, Galatians 1.4. I quoted on the back of my newest track, that he gave himself up for our sins. Yeah, so uh, Christ didn't literally become a sinner on the cross. He was a sin offering. It's like the Old Testament sacrifices where they were sin offerings. The lamb who was slain didn't literally become a sinner. The scapegoat who went out of the camp didn't literally become a, a sinful goat because goats can't be sinful. You know, so, uh, and I would uh, apply that to Jesus as well. He didn't literally become sinful. He was a sin offering. Yeah. And just as a scapegoat is let out of the camp, Jesus died outside of the camp, it says. 
outside the city of Jerusalem. So yeah, these these are the concepts we're, we're we're dealing with when we deal with the atonement. Yes, brother. Isn't there a verse that's uh, trying to find it where it says that he will be betrayed and given over to the to the, to the authorities? That I think I, I know we went there before. Right. Through those verses where it, where it says he's given he's given over to the uh, right. Uh, we have uh, let's see dealing with who actually crucified him, who killed him. I have some notes here. We have Matthew sixteen twenty one. We have uh, Matthew twenty verse eighteen. Let's go to, let's go to Matthew sixteen twenty one for a second. It says, uh, from the time, that time Jesus began to show to his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things from the elders and chief priests and scribes. So who's causing the suffering? They're causing the suffering. And be killed and be raised the third day. Uh, Matthew 20, verse 18 and 19. Um, it says... Behold, this is Jesus talking here. Behold, we are going up to Jerusalem, and the Son of Man will be betrayed to the chief priests and to the scribes, and they will condemn him to death and deliver him to the Gentiles to mock and to scourge and to crucify, and the third day he'll rise again. So we see, once again, they're doing those things. Um, and then we can go to Matthew 27, 2. Uh, this is referring to... Well, let's just go to Acts 2 for a second. Acts 2, verse 23... It says, him being delivered, this is referring to what you said, John, him being delivered by the determined purpose and foreknowledge of God, so he's being delivered, in other words, he's not protecting him anymore. Uh, you have taken by lawless hands, have crucified and put to death. Okay, yeah. And then you also have uh, Acts 2.36, it says, therefore let all the house of Israel know surely that God has made this Jesus whom you crucified, both Lord and Christ. Um, Acts 3.13 And the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob and the God of our fathers glorified his servant Jesus whom you delivered up and denied in the presence of Pilate when he was determined to let him go. Yeah, so there's, there's more we could go through. Acts 3.15, Acts 4.10, Acts 5.30 It'll all be... Uh, I'm sorry, I didn't know you were copying them down. Acts 3.15 Acts 4.10 um, Acts 5.30 These are all scriptures referring to who actually did the killing, who did these things to him. Uh, 2.36 is actually also Acts 3.13 and 15. Um, and when it comes to delivering, we also saw it in Matthew 27 too, what it touched on a second ago. And then, let's see here. And John. John 18, 12 through 14. And also, John 19 and 11. 19 and 11. So there's many people involved in delivering. There's Judas delivering. Well, obviously God had a part in delivering because he took his hand of protection off him. Jesus had a part in delivering because he didn't call in 12 legions of angels when he could have. 
Uh, we have Judas delivering because he's leading him to the place where it says in John, they often went there so Judas knew where it was. Then we have the soldiers delivering to the Sanhedrin, the Sanhedrin delivering to Pilate, and Pilate not standing up like he should, and saying he's innocent, and delivering him to death. So, but we know that from these scriptures that God is not forcing these people to do these things. These men were already wicked. They already hated Jesus, already wanted to kill him. And so there's no coercion needed by God for those things. Like there's no coercion needed for Pharaoh to do the things he did. Okay.